بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين اللهم لا سهل إلا ما جاءته سهلة وأنت تجعل الحزن إذا شئ سهلة 
Allahumma a'inna ala dhikrika wa shukrika wa husna ibadatik ya Rabbil Kareem. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. So uh, straight uh, from the off, straight away to give people time online, I think alhamdulillah we dealt with it here. But this is, this is probably, in my opinion, um, an 18 plus lesson, maybe 16 plus or 18 plus. So if there are children with you online watching this, then this is a good opportunity. I'll give you a few minutes for uh, you to take your children um, out of the uh, lesson. <clears throat> um, so whilst, whilst people are doing that, inshallah, whilst people are doing that, um, the folks will need to see the screen if you want to uh, take the, the maximum benefit from the class. So position yourselves in a place where you can see the screen. Obviously the pictures are one of the reasons why the class is obviously what it's going to be like. Alhamdulillah, we launched Fiqh of Death last two weekends in Qabila Shams um, in, um, in London. And Alhamdulillah, it was, uh, it was very beneficial. Alhamdulillah, I'm, I'm very happy that the next place where it's going to be taught is sunny Manchester. So Alhamdulillah, in February, we're going to be bringing it here to Manchester. <clears throat> and I wanted to uh, welcome all of the new LP students because I know a number of new students from London have joined. I also want to give a shout out to the Malaysian students because I've always got a, love, a lot of love and time for the Malaysian students. I'll be seeing them soon as well, inshallah. Um, so I hope that everyone's now kind of cleared uh, their children and, and so on. It's just delicate. You know, I, I, I was thinking about myself and normally, to be honest, I'd bring my kids to something like this. I would. But I thought, well, I maybe... No, just, you know, I thought, okay, forget it. So this is all surrounding, of course, and the other news, of course, is, well, you don't know this, but this actually is the last ever logical progression lesson. And that's because I'll be in jail next week. <laughs> You'll realize by the end of the lesson why. Okay, so <laughs> make dua, folks, okay? We need some serious protection. We need some serious malaika to, to have our backs in this lesson, okay? Um, by the way, I just noticed everyone looking at the screen. Nothing's happening at the screen just yet. Be a good while yet. Just relax and focus on the lesson. I will tell you when there's something on the lesson, on the screen, inshallah. So um, this is all surrounding. Uh, of course, we covered the issue of Bismillah uh, last week. Alhamdulillah, a, a superb set of notes has been written up by the transcribing team. Please check it out on the forums. Um, the videos as well, alhamdulillah, they will remain now. Uh, thanks to, to uh, real pressure from the London squad. And the Malaysian squad, with the two people I like most because they're the ones who got the best marks and care the most and bring the most chocolates. Other Dr. Shizad, mashallah, he looks after me. But other than that, even Bob's is our own boy, he doesn't bring us nothing. He's got his own dukan, own shop, own business. Squat. Even when we go there, we get nothing. Even when we go before 10.30, we still get nothing. And his witness, and he's on tape saying that if you come before 10.30, blah, blah, huh? nothing. But the Malaysians, mashallah, they look after us and Singaporeans and London. And they, they wanted an extension on the time. So the video will now remain up, inshallah, um, until the beginning of, the, of this lesson. Uh, at the same time, I just want to make it very clear that there might be times where we just pull it down. Because uh, I don't want people to be abusing the fact that they don't now have to be at the live session. And therefore, they don't have to give it the concern that they used to. Um, I'm doing it because... I have come to notice myself firsthand. I saw a few, a, a few students who, 
on some weeks, if they go and study on the weekend and they're studying during the, the week itself, Thursday, Friday, well, Friday and Saturday, Sunday will be taken out by a class that would leave only Thursday night. If you miss your chance on Thursday night, then the video is gone. So to be honest, that's a, that's a fair argument that was put forward and I saw it firsthand this week, last week, sorry. So Monday and Tuesday will remain. So I'm hoping that everyone's gone. Um, and also anyone who gets a bit kind of squeamish and things like that, they're also or a bit prude. They also need to be kind of like, you know, exit. Okay then, so uh, Imam al-Hajjawi alayhi rahmatullah says in the, the, the text of Zad al-Mustaqni' he says, uh, Bismillah, he says So circumcision is obligatory as long as he does not fear for himself um, And it is disliked to shave part of the head and leave part Okay uh, That's all To shave part of the head and leave part is all covered by the Arabic word قَزَع We'll come to that um, Maybe next week I think but the key thing is the circumcision is obligatory as long as he does not fear for himself. Now, circumcision, of course, is a pretty standard uh, situation for you know everyone in the world. That's packs note too well. Sunnat, yani, uh, sunnat Masliya are a big yani, mission for every parent, as we all know. <clears throat> and getting sunnat done is part and parcel of the parenting process and so on. But of course, it's taken a huge political dimension in recent times with respect to female circumcision. So... This is a class of knowledge, and this is not some kind of, you know, second-hand class. This is, I think, the best class of fiqh that there is, if I don't say so myself. Bismillah, mashallah, and we can only prove that if we take it to the next level. And so the next level would be not to run away from the issue, but to, uh, to try and deal with it head-on. So we will look at the issues, we'll look at the evidences, we'll look at the realities, we'll look at the claims, and then we'll see what we can get out of it. Anyway, let's uh, follow some kind of structure at least, not to make it too random. Shaykh uh, al will follow his little lead in his commentary to this one line. So on page 163 at the bottom, he starts by saying that it is obligatory, quoting the text of Imam al-Hajjawi, that it is obligatory, circumcision is obligatory, as long as he does not fear for himself. And he says, well, let's just first confirm where this comes from. The first person who established this sunnah and here, sunnah is not being used in the usuli fashion. It's not being used to suggest something is recommended and not obligatory. Sunnah here is being used to, to say what? Not tradition. Well, yeah, maybe tradition. But more, more, more obvious than that. More open. The way. The way. Correct. The way. All right? Or the behavior. Or the nature. These are the kind of words we're looking at. Or the rightly guided nature. Of a human being, all right. So, and this, this, the, the issue of circumcision comes under what's called as known as the Sunan al-Fitra. Even that name, you can see what we're talking about. The Fitra is what? The Fitra. How do you guys translate Fitra? Natural state. Natural state. Okay. Anyone else? Anyone have an idea what Fitrat means? Or Fitra? I call it the innate nature. You have natural states. What we're talking about when we say the fitrah, we're talking the generic, the generic innate zero, almost, that you're born upon. Your actual natural state before it's polluted by anything else. Alright? 
before you are taken any other way. I tell you what's very interesting. Everyone knows this famous hadith that the Prophet Sallallahu said that the, that the people are, children are born upon a fitrah. Yes? Right? And then the Prophet Sallallahu said it is the parents then who will then either make him a Christian huh, or will make him a Jew or will make him a Majusi, meaning a fire worshipper. I.e. basically to say that parents uh, and external influence and ideology will take a raw, clean, pure, uh, natural state, the soul, and make it into something. i tell you something also interesting is that a lot of Muslims mistranslate this hadith. They say that people are born upon Islam. People are not born upon Islam. It's not accurate to say that. People are born upon a natural state. Yes, the natural state of a human being is to worship Allah. There's no doubt about that. And that's very interesting and a very important point to make that not everyone is just born automatically a Muslim. Because, um, I mean, we used to have this debate back in the day when I used to be involved in Tao tables and stuff. Um, and I remember when we used to debate the Christians, uh, uh, I'd always use this example of, a, of, a, of an island. I'd say that, listen, if you were on an island, you were just, you're born on an island all by yourself and you just woke up and then you grew and, you know, let's like some Robinson Crusoe flex on you, you know? And you start to get used to your surroundings and this and that. You'd look at things and you'd pretty much go through an, Abraham, an Abrahamic experience. You'd look at the weather. You'd look at the change of season. You'd look at food growing and then, uh, you know, drying out at a harvest time. You start to make some patterns, wouldn't you? Yeah. You start to drink the seawater and then realize you get thirsty. And then you start to drink the water which is fresh inland and you realize, yeah, that works much better. You start to learn a lot of things. You start to realize that you can't burn the leaves as well as you can burn the bark. You know what I'm trying to say? There are a lot of things that automatically occur when there's no external influence. You'd look at the, uh, you'd look at the moon, you'd be amazed by it, then it'd disappear, you'd get depressed by it. You'd look at the stars, you'd think they're great sometimes, the rest of the time, no. You'd look at the sun, you would look at the sun. The sun would, would, would completely bamboozle you. You'd look at that, you'd feel its heat, you'd feel its light, you'd, feel, you'd, you'd, you'd see... When the things are in the shade, they don't grow. When things are not in the shade, they do grow. So you then give it intrinsic power. Yes, you would then give it. Uh, uh, you'd also associate your mood with darkness, fear, sounds, and whereas light is happy and and confidence and so on. So many things would happen. The fitra has is 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 that the fitra is a state of being that has many positive. Many well-known, obvious kind of uh, facts to it. But when the sun disappears, you'd realize it's not all-powerful. You'd think that there's something controlling the sun. Meaning to believe in the one, one something, is a fitra development. Okay? To believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. To believe in a prophet is not. You understand what I'm trying to say? To believe in a prophet just automatically is not the most obvious thing until you are starting to put together. Unless someone came and said something to you. That's what I'm trying to say. Okay? If someone came and said something to you and said, hey, you know what you've been seeing? This is what, what it means. But if no one came to you, then why would you believe in a person? You'd still be trying to can make connection with the, the source, which is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Which is why Tawheed is the root of everything. And it's a, it is the pure, Tawheed, the worship of one unique creator alone with his attributes, with his power and so on. That is the pure fitrah. It is then additional knowledge which we achieve uh, by accepting the risala, the message from the creator to the slave. Which is why, of course, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that we did not punish a people until we sent them a messenger. Meaning that we did not hold a people accountable for their belief 
until we sent them a messenger. Sent them. Naba'ath. That we sent them a, a messenger from ourselves. So if a messenger doesn't come, then you're not being held accountable for it. Which means that it's not purely from the fitrah to expect a message to come. The reason I mention this is because people, they say that you're born a Muslim. No, you're not born Muslim. You're born upon fitrah and you become and you move into Islam. And if you died without ever taking another religion at all, then you'll be judged, as we said, mentioned many times before, in the hadith of Ibn Majah, and it's sahih, you'll be judged on the day of judgment. You'll be judged among the people who didn't hear a message, who were born upon this and were kept isolated, the people who were disabled throughout their lives that never had mental faculty, the people who became, uh, who were in some form of senility all their lives, whatever. Main thing is, is that if you are not able to function in your life, you will be given a second chance, inshallah. And that hadith, there are a few versions of that. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will gather the people and He will give them a command. And the command in one narration, or the, fam- the most famous of the narrations, is that He will tell them to jump into the fire. It will be a straight command. It will be a straight fire, jump into the fire. They will either accept the authority of God on that, on, uh, on that test or at that test, and they will do that and it will become paradise. And it will be their trust in their Creator. Or they will fail. And Allah knows best. The hadith isn't the strongest in the world. The issue isn't the clearest in the world, but we do believe that in the justice of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, anyone who's unable to decipher a message in this life, then, then they will be given another chance. And also the, the, the concept of kufr supports that. Kufr is an active, it's not passive. Kufr is denial. You know what I'm saying? Kafir, the word kafir is someone who actively denies. It's not like a passive state. It, just, it, it, it fits the, the justice of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Some, and even when you, when, you, when you start looking at the hadith, the Prophet ﷺ said that everyone will enter paradise illa man aba, except the one who refuses. So the asl is that the people of this life will go back to their spiritual home, which is Jannah. And unless they really, really don't want to go. Unless they, and you see so many of those people. Well, like you would have thought that's crazy, but it's not, isn't it? We see so many of those people around us every day. They say that, you know what, I don't really care about what happens. I'm just going to have you enjoy myself here. Openly, they'll say it. They'll openly say it. So, it's not so strange. So, the fitrah is a natural state. Now, from the natural state of the fitrah, I want to say that um, uh, uh, this natural state has certain things that help the natural state even in a physical way. And from the physical nature is to, for example... Uh, in the hadith which is famous in Sahih Muslim and in, uh, and in Sahih Bukhari to trim the moustache for example to clean the pubic hairs to cut the nails and so on and so forth and um, these are called the sunan al-fitra right? the, the, the actions and the guidance of a people who are in complete harmony with a good healthy sensible living and one of these of course is khitan khitan is the circumcision so therefore, it's clear that circumcision is going to have some kind of benefits which is going to then feed into this idea of the supreme natural state. Now, Ibrahim salam, of course, was the first person who established that. And that's been narrated um, uh, in a specific hadith, narrated by Ibn Abi Asim in the book Al-Awail, wa Imam Tabarani, also in Al-Awail, and on the authority of uh, Salama ibn Raja and Muhammad ibn Amr ibn Al-Qama and Abi Salamata and Abi Huraira and the Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that he said that Ibrahim was the first person to be circumcised. Okay? He was the first person to be circumcised. Um, there's some discussion about this hadith. 
There is some discussion about this hadith. But inshallah, um, should we have a discussion about it? It's interesting actually. Um, there are some people who basically said that uh, this hadith has uh, uh, some people who are not really, who should not be considered in the sciences of, in, in, in narration. Yani they're not followed really. They're not followed. Their, their narrations are not really the, those which are trusted. Except that we have other people such as Abu Usama, Hamad ibn Usama, and he is someone who's trustworthy, thiqa, and he is the one who gave this hadith some, stre- from, some, uh, some strength. So really the real issue is the person Muhammad ibn Amr ibn al-Qama, but he is considered to be suduq, meaning truthful, lahu awham, but he has some doubtful matters. He has some strange positions. Ibn Ma'in, who is Ibn Ma'in? Yahya ibn Ma'in is the teacher of Imam al-Bukhari from the Imams of Ahl al-Hadith. He is the companions of Imam Ahmed. He said, um, he said about this, about this Muhammad ibn Amr, he said, you know the people of, uh, uh, the, the real people, yani mazal al-nas, the, the people have always, the, the, the people who know, they've always been fearful of this man's hadith. This is a statement of a scholar. I think, you know what, they've never really felt easy about his hadith. There's always something uh, there. Someone said to him, well, what's the reason for that? What's the hidden fault? What's the hidden reason? Remember last week we said illa, okay, in hadith has a specific meaning. It means like hidden fault. What's the, what's, what's, what's the magic that you're seeing that everyone else can't see? And he said, well, he used to, uh, sometimes he would, uh, he, sometimes he would narrate from Abu Salama something from his own opinion, and then he would then narrate from him another time from Abu Salama under authority of Abu Huraira, meaning he's, he's mixing up everything, and therefore once you see that, you start to feel, lose confidence in him, and therefore we don't follow him, therefore we don't follow him. Um, and another, uh, 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 there's another narration as well, this hadith has been narrated marfu'ah, meaning from Abu Huraira on the Prophet, remember when we say marfu'ah, then it means that it has been raised to the Prophet meaning Abu Huraira has narrated it from the Prophet But this, all, this chain also has some problems, and Imam al-Bayhaqi, he considered this hadith to be mawquf. Mawquf meaning there is a statement of Abu Huraira and not of the Prophet. So we can conclude that there are some scholars that thought this was a statement of the Prophet and others who thought it was a statement of Abu Huraira himself alone. The point being is that we don't actually have any other evidence to go against this anyway. Sayyidina Ibrahim salam was the first person to have circumcised himself. Circumcised himself, I'll show you later on actually how that happened as well. Now, um, circumcision. What does it mean for the male? Shaykh al on page 164, he says it means the cutting or the, the removal of the foreskin which is above the hashafa. The jalda is skin. And here the skin has been given a specific meaning, uh, meaning the foreskin. And the hashafa is the glands, which is the head of the penis. Okay, the glands. And I will show you again a picture to make that uh, clear to you uh, all. Um, that is what it is. It's the removal of the foreskin from the from the glands, exposing the glands, and we'll talk about that. And as for the woman, as for the female, what does female circumcision mean? I quote Sheikh Al Uthaymin. He says that it is the cutting of the extraneous or extra. Is extraneous the same as extra? What does extraneous mean? Outside. Outside of. So that's not the word then. The the uh, uh, the um, surplus is the word I was looking for. Zakalah is surplus. The surplus skin above the above 
the top of the vagina, above the top of the labia. The fuqaha, the fuqaha, the scholars of before, they said, may Allah have mercy upon them. It looks like the uh, rooster's, um, whatever that is. You know that rooster thing. What do they call that? Crown? Crown. I think it is crown, isn't it? Yeah? The crown of a rooster. That kind of like that red kind of... You know when you've know you got fancy dress party and they put that hat on to make them to look like a rooster? It's got like a red kind of thing. Right? I don't know. Don't think. But I'll show you a diagram so it'll, it'll, become, it'll, become, uh, it'll become clearer. Now I want you to know that this is Sheikh Uthameen speaking and he's not a biologist, he's not a doctor and he's not a gynecologist. Definitely. Alright? So he's, he's just giving his own opinion. And he's quoting scholars, some of them who would have seen this, some of them who would have not seen this. So I'm just carrying on in the book with the text, and then we will then give our own opinions of what's going on. Now, I want you to know, um, what I want to do in this lesson is I'm going to just go straight through Sheikh Uthameen's statements, then I want to speak afterwards myself. Is that good? Yeah? So that we don't, so that we don't, um, so we don't mix the two. So you hear what he wants to say, and then what I want to say. Okay? So Sheikh Uthameen, he goes... That according to what our author is saying, then this is actually, therefore, this circumcision is obligatory upon a male and a female. And that is the position of the madhab. That is the position of the Hanbali madhab. And it has also been said within the madhab, we can put in brackets basically, that it is obligatory upon the males but not the females. And it's that position which was chosen by Al-Muwaffaq. Who is Al-Muwaffaq? Ibn Qudama al-Maqdisi, all right, who is the Imam and the the leader of the Madhab and the author of al-Mughni. Okay, he is the he's the daddy basically of the Madhab, and that's narrated as you can see in al-Mughni chapter one, page one hundred and fifteen. It has also been said, it has also been narrated. Sheikh Al-Thamim continues that it is a Sunnah for men and for women. It's a Sunnah for men and for women. So you had three statements already, obligatory for both. Second, obligatory, obligatory for man and not so for the woman. Alright? That's the position of Ibn Qudama al-Maqdisi. And then number three, it's his sunnah for man and for woman. He, and, he con- and he continues. He said Ibn Qayyim in his book, and I bought a, a recent copy, Jazallah had Muhammad Mana, I was with him in Medina and he found me, his barakah, one of my friends, I went with him to a bookshop and he found me a beautiful copy of uh, his, uh, Ibn Qayyim has a book on the birth of newborns, newborn children. And all of the rulings to do with the newborn. And it's a really nice copy that I found there. And anyway, Ibn Qayyim, he goes into a lot of detail, is what Shaykh Uthameen says. He really went into it, right? In that book, about all this issue and so on and so on. He goes into discussion of the evidences, back and forth, back and forth. And, and, and by the way, I'm, again, I just want to emphasize, I'm just speaking for Shaykh Uthameen, all right? He went on and he talked about the evidences. And even after all of that, he didn't conclude with what was a stronger opinion. Yeah, and he gave us all a headache after all that time and then basically didn't... He didn't make tarjih of anything. He didn't say this is the rajih or this is not. He just left us hanging like that. It's as, it's as if, and Allah knows best, that he, even him, he hasn't really come to like a clear kind of position. This is important. This is important, what, what, what he says here. It's almost like even he, after going through this and that and this and that, he didn't really come to a position. As for what I think to be the most uh, closest to the truth of all these statements, Shaykh Uthameen says, 
that it is an obligation upon men. And it is a sunnah for the women. And why do I divide between them? I divide between them because when it comes to the man, then there is a clear benefit. It's a clear benefit. And that benefit goes back to one of the conditions for the prayer. It is a condition for the prayer to be in a state of purification or purity. And it is known that if the foreskin remains, then one is never going to ever be completely clear of urine. Indeed, urine gathers within the foreskin, therefore making it impossible to be in a state of purity for the prayer. Okay, and it also becomes a reason for infection and inflammation. And uh, also, if it doesn't, and therefore you are causing difficulty and pain for yourself. Also, if any pressure is applied to the foreskin, then urine will come out, which has become latent and stored, and that will of course cause najasa. So it's causing a problem across the board when it comes to the male. So what's he basically saying? Najasa issues, infection issues, health issues. That's what Shaykh Uthameen is saying. He goes, as for the woman, then at best, فَغَايَةُ يعني At best, we can say that it reduces her, uh, her, uh, uh, her sexual desire. At best, it reduces her sexual desire. And what would you categorize such an action, the reduction of sexual desire? This is talabul kamal. Yani this is perfection in a human being. Alright? So this is not remedying a negative condition. This is not fixing a problem. This is going from good state to perfect state. Yani uh, it's important from a legal point of view what he's trying to ascertain. He's saying that this is aiming for perfection. And aiming for perfection is not obligatory. And he also said that to do any form of female circumcision is not from the chapter or, or not from the not from the matters of removing filth, as it is in the in the male case, or anything harmful, which it is in the male case. It cannot be said for the female. Therefore, we de- therefore therefore we differentiate between the ruling for both of them. Sheikh said, he said, have no doubt though that it is obligatory that there is a very knowledgeable uh, 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 doctor. Uh, circumciser uh, Is that even a, a noun? Circumciser well, I'm sure it is Anyway yeah That um, male, male or female um, That is in charge of this And they have to know what's going on And if he's not around Then the person can do it himself Okay Then the person can do it themselves As long as they reckon they're able to do it Okay And indeed Ibrahim salam did do it himself And uh, the author He did make it a condition that uh, 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 that if uh, that he shouldn't be worried about himself, yani, and if he does fear that he's going to die, all right, or he's going to have blood loss, or there's going to be some kind of harm, then it's not obligatory. And actually, Sheikh Uthameen then continues. He says, and to be honest, this is a condition in all of the obligatory matters. Many meaning. This is a very f- excellent point he makes. He goes, actually, any obligatory matter that you can think of. If you feel that you're going to cause some harm to yourself, or you're going to die, or you're going to be in a worse off state, then it does not become obligatory. That's really interesting. I'll tell you why that's interesting. 
Because that is actually the reason that I saw from Shaykh Uthameen alayhi rahmatullah many years ago in allowing people to pray seated, seated on a plane. Because that's a big issue, you know, because a lot of people are like, you know, what kind of black are you using to pray seat, sitting down on a plane? And uh, because to stand is one of the most obligatory pillars of the prayer. You have to, regardless. I mean, there's absolutely no excuse, unless you physically can't, then you sit on a chair. But here you've got a person basically who hasn't got the guts. He knows that if he goes to, you know, uh, the, you know some, a few places in the plane, or even ask the guy next to him, listen, do you give me five minutes, what about that? I'll give you 20 minutes break, you give me five minutes break, let me pray here, whatever. You can strike a deal with people, right? And so he can pray in that place, and everyone's got stories, and you remember Fiqh Salah, uh, I, I told you a load of stories that, from my own experience in that with other people. Uh, I mean, today, uh, 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 and what's interesting, of course, is that when Sheikh Uthameen answered this question, he was basically being told by the questioner, listen, you know, uh, there's a real kind of, you know, we, we really freak out. It's difficult, you know. And that was, that was pre-9-11, by the way. That was pre the day when there's some Yanni Pak on the plane. It's not a plaque, pack. He wishes it was a pack. But it's some Gora, basically. who's going to pull out his gun and just shoot in the head. And the first time you try and go Allah Akbar, yeah? What's he called again? Air Marshal. And he's hidden as well, you know what I'm saying? It could be the guy next to you and he really blow you out, right? So I'm saying that actually the fear of freaking out whilst praying is actually a real fear. It can destroy a person's khushua. He can't concentrate. He's like, everyone's looking at me. I'm about to die. Someone's about to jump on me. I'm about to die there as well. Someone's going to report me and their security's going to be waiting. I'm going to, you know, he's really freaking out. Shaykh Uthameen said that there's an issue in the books of fiqh that if a person is uh, uh, running from uh, the tyrant ruler who's after him for some reason. Okay, and it's dhulm. It's dhulm. It has to be dhulm, yeah? And he's running from the guy and he's hiding and he's hiding behind the wall and the salah time comes and the other guys are on the other side trying to find him and it's salah time. He doesn't have to stand up to pray because if he stands up, he's going to be seen, right? So it's allowed for him, the fuqaha said he can stay seated and pray and then the people won't see him. Qiyas then upon that, he goes, the qiyas upon that is if he's really, really freaking you out, then you haven't got the guts to stand up in prayer, then I give permission to the person to pray um, sitting down. So, um, I just want, I just, when he mentioned this point here, it, that reminded me of that statement, that for him, if there's harm or, or major issue or major problem or whatever, then an obligatory action doesn't become, le- 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 loses its obligatory uh, nature. فَلَا So it's not obligatory if one is unable to do something about it. أو ما Meaning, or if you fear that there's going to be some loss or destruction or some harm or something, so on and so forth. Then he continues, let's very quickly just move on. He goes, it is permissible for the circumciser, the khatin. Okay, the one who circumcises someone is called a khatin. And if it's a female, then it's a khatina. And the person who gets circumcised is called Makhtun. Okay. He goes, it's permissible for the circumciser to look at the aura of the Makhtun. Okay. Um, and even if he has reached the age of 10 years old. And that is because there is a need for that. Okay. There is a need for that. Um, as for the one for the uh, adult, he doesn't mention it here. We'll talk about that a little bit later. He goes, as for the, the, the evidence why we consider it to be obligatory for the male then this is because this is because the Prophet wasallam mentioned that five things are from the fitrah, and these are all obligatory matters, and one of them was the khitan. Okay, one of them is circumcision. The hadith of five things being from the 
fitra. Okay, and then he also uh, he also sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Sorry, and Sheikh Tamim then says the second evidence is he he ordered the one who became Muslim to do to do circumcision. He ordered the one who became Muslim to do circumcision. And that indicates obligation. Now, that's all he says. He ordered someone who became Muslim to do circumcision. The muhaqqiq, the one who is authenticating the hadith, he says, okay, he says that this narration that Shaykh Al-Thameen is talking about, okay, is uh, uh, get rid of the hair of disbelief from you and circumcise yourself. This is the hadith. The Prophet ﷺ said to a new Muslim, get rid of the hair of kufr from you, like, like, like do like a cleansing, like shave it all off and like, purify yourself and circumcise yourself. This is the hadith. It's narrated by Imam Ahmed and it's narrated by Imam Abu Dawood and it is on the authority of Ibn Juraj who said that I was informed by Uthaym ibn Kulayb and Abihi and Jaddihi and then he mentioned the hadith. Ibn al-Qattan al-Farsi, he said that this chain is maximum weak. It can't get any weaker than, than, than this chain. This is a, a, like the maximum weakness that a chain can get. There is also a break in the chain. Okay? It's also a break in the chain as well. And the father and the grandfather of Uthain are both uh, unknown. And he said that in a book called Bayan al-Waham wal-Iham. The problem is, is that there are two supporting narrations for this hadith. The first of them, the hadith of Wathila ibn al-Asqa', narrated by Imam al-Tabrani, al-Haythami, said about that hadith, that this hadith has someone called Mansur ibn Amr al-Wa'idh, and he is weak. The second supporting narration for that hadith is the hadith of Qatada Abi Hisham, narrated also by Imam al-Tabrani. And Imam al-Haythami, he said that the men of this chain are all trustworthy. I say, meaning the muhaqqad. I say, Qultu. Fihi Hisham ibn Qatada al-Rahawi, al-Rahawi, and he is a tabi'i who was not considered to be trustworthy except by Ibn Hibban. The reason why he mentions that is because Imam Ibn Hibban is considered to be from what we call the mutasahirin, meaning from the people who are like a little bit lenient when it comes to giving ruling, okay, in hadith. So he mentions that as a point. No one considered him to be trustworthy except Ibn Hibban is his indicating that this hadith is weak as well. So therefore, what's our... Oh yeah, sorry. And then he says, then he continues. He says, it should be said that Imam al-Nawawi said, or, or Imam al-Nawawi inclined to the opinion that this hadith was acceptable. Hassan, meaning that he considered it to be something acceptable. And Imam al-Bukhari narrated this in al-Adab al-Mufrad. And with an authentic chain on the authority of Imam Az-Zuhri. And what did he say? He said that a man, when, he would, when a man would become Muslim, then he would be commanded to do circumcision, even if he was an adult. Even if he was an adult. Ibn Kathir said this hadith is Mursal Hassan, meaning this hadith is not a statement of the Prophet ﷺ with a correct chain. There is the companion who's missing. The companion is missing, therefore this is not what we call an authentic hadith. Basically what I want to say to you is, as a conclusion of all of that, it is clear that this hadith is not from the most authentic of narrations, and it's also something which is not 
uh, clearly Hassan either. He has a number of issues and criticisms. The third point which Sheikh Uthameen then uses as his evidence to make this obligatory. Remember, we've said three reasons. The first one was... Because it's from the Sunnah al-Fitra. Alright, it's from the five matters of the Fitra. Alright, second, this hadith, yes? The Prophet ﷺ commanded the one who became Muslim to do the khitan. The third evidence is that the khitan is a differentiator between the Muslims and the Christians. And in actual fact, when the, the corpses of the bodies on the battlefield were there, the only way that you would distinguish between who's your man and who isn't your man in the big army clashes would be circumcised and uncircumcised men. Circumcised and uncircumcised men. And Sheikh Tamim continues. He goes, the Muslims continued in the action of the Arab. The Arab and the Jews have always circumcised before the Muslims. The Jews for ages, of course, and the, the Quraysh, the, the Jahiliya Arab, they also used to do circumcision, and the Muslims followed them into that. Whereas the Christians, they don't do that. And if this really is a distinction, then it becomes obligatory. If this really is a distinction, then it becomes obligatory. I have to say that that's a very interesting statement by Sheikh Uthameen, and it's not without criticism, that statement. And then he also said, number four, it is the cutting of something, um, it is the cutting of something from the body. And cutting something the, from the body is what? What do you think what the ruling is? Not allowed. It's mutilation, isn't it? It's not allowed to cut something from your body, is it? If you say today I want to cut my finger off, is it allowed to? It's not allowed. It's haram, yes? And the sheikh said that it's not possible for something to allow the haram except that it must be obligatory. This is his argument. Something is going to make you do haram. It can't be like if you want to do it or if you don't want to do it. Haram or not haram. It has to be obligatory. And it's going to be going straight in. Number five, um, he says, uh, number five, to be honest, is not, not very, yani, it's not, uh, it's not, not, not no, no, no. let's leave number five. Then he goes, as for the, as for the position for the, for the women, then I consider the strongest of the statements to be that it is a sunnah, that it is a sunnah. And the reason I think that is because of the statement of the Prophet ﷺ that the khitan, this is the statement, this is the hadith. Al-khitanu sunnatun fi haqqil rijal makramatun and an narration makrumatan fi haqqil nisa. That the, uh, 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 that circumcision is a sunnah with respect to men and an honorable thing with respect to women. This is the hadith that he used. This hadith has been narrated by Imam Ahmed and Bayhaqi. This hadith is da'if. And Shaykh Uthameen also says, لَكِنَّهُ ضَعِيف وَلَوْ صَحَّ لَكَانَ فَاصِلًا And if it had been authentic, then it would have been the end of the matter. But it's not authentic. So for me, I'm considering it to be uh, a sunnah. That is Shaykh Uthameen. Okay? That's him basically on this chapter and so on and so forth. I want to now just basically have a discussion on this. Um, I want to straight off say to you that with respect to the obligatory nature of khitan, then this is considered to be the position of the Hanbali school and the Shafi'i school, okay? And also Ibn Taymiyyah. Ibn Taymiyyah and the Shafi'is and the Hanbalis, they considered circumcision to be outright obligatory. As for the Hanafi school and the Maliki school and one narration from Imam Ahmed, 
the circumcision for men is considered to be a sunnah and sunnah only, not something which is obligatory. And at this juncture, I will just indicate to you that if you look at what the uh, Hanbali text itself says, if he fears for himself, then he doesn't need to. You can almost kind of indicate that it's not like any the big killer kind of thing, right? He's almost kind of giving like a way out. But that's just a side point. <coughs> with respect to the women, with respect to the women, it is considered to be a recommended thing, meaning actually go out and do it, mustahab, by the Maliki school only. By the Maliki school only. As for the second position, which is that it is something which is honorable, but not sunnah. So something which is, if one does, then it's like the action of a noble, high woman, and protecting herself, etc., etc. <coughs> then this is the position of the Hanafi school and the Hanbali school. The Hanafi school and the Hanbali school. Alright? So, we can conclude that from the ruling. I want to say to you that when you look at all of the evidences, uh, every single hadith of the Prophet ﷺ when it comes to the um, obligating this issue, all right, I want to say that I, my class position is that it is an obligation upon the men. There's no doubt about that. It's medical benefits alone would, would obligate that, frankly. Okay, And we're seeing a rise of non-Muslims doing that like you know, out of the park. Um, just because it's medical benefits. Uh, as for the... Uh, as for the Sharia, then for the men, it is very good. So, the, uh, as for the men itself, then uh, 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 from a Sharia point of view, then the hadith of the five uh, uh, Sunan makes it clear the action of following Sayyidina Ibrahim as well as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, um, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and some of their ulama said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Surah Al-Nahl. Uh, and Allah ha- has uh, and this is speaking to the Prophet Sallallahu and Allah has uh, has inspired uh, uh, revealed to you inspired you O Muhammad follow the way of your your leader Ibrahim in monotheism follow التابع, meaning is a, is a command and this is Surah Nahl verse 123 and that is a indicator of obligation. Therefore, we should follow that. So that's good. But so, I, 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 with respect to the obligatory nature, I don't want to talk too much about that because you know, I'm not too fussed about that. What we really need to talk about is the female side. Okay, the female side starts off immediately with respect to um, this hadith, uh, the Sunan of the Fitra. They said that the Sunan of Fitra basically established it as a basic principle. And I find that very strange because in the Sunan of the Fitra, if they're going to use the word because circumcision uh, appears in those five things, they're going to apply that to the women, then they should also then apply trimming the moustache to the women as well. Which, incidentally, I do believe is an obligation, okay? <laughs> or maybe even beyond obligation. But not just trimming, that's complete removal. Huh, Abu Dhar? We don't believe in trimming for the women, it's all has to go. But the hadith doesn't say uh, uh, all has to go, it's trimming. So if the men can say this is for men and this is for, for not for women, then likewise khitan itself cannot automatically just be established upon the woman from this hadith, in my opinion. Uh, likewise, every single hadith that we find, and there are a couple, not many, where the Prophet ﷺ was meant to have said something to, to, to the women to do uh, circumcision, there is weakness in them. One of them, or the famous ones is when he said to... Uh, uh, don't go to extremes. 
Don't go to extremes. When he came upon a woman who was circumcising another woman, meaning that he found out that this was happening and he went to the place where it was and he advised the one who was about to do it, don't go to an extreme that will be better for the woman and more pleasing for the husband. Don't go to an extreme. What does it mean by don't go to an extreme? It means basically the amount that is cut. And Sayyidina Umar, um, Sayyidina Umar himself, and I want to just establish something, that the female circumcision was absolutely the norm in the culture of the Arab. Absolute norm. And you will see many of the companions talking about it, many of them. I remember one narration from Sayyidina Aisha, radiallahu anha, she went to a walima, okay, and they, that's what they used to do. After they have a circumcision, they used to have some kind of walima because this is a big thing. Yani, I want you to know that, 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 that to be circumcised is like one of the, the, the key acts of purity. You've really like taken it to the next level and one of the real establishments of, of Islam. And if you're an adult and you get through circumcision, that's jihad right there. You know what I'm saying? So it's, not, it's, not, it's quite obvious that they're going to have a party. But she went to a party once uh, that, uh, you know, and, and uh, 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 the news, the dawah was circumcision has been done. When she gets there, she finds out it's the circumcision of a woman. She says, you see, that's the mistake you lot made. When it's a circumcision of a woman, it's not publicly announced. As for the men, then it's publicly announced and everyone goes around. As for the women one, it's kept on a down low. It's an issue of izzat, an issue of whatever. So I want to make it very clear that this used to happen. Sayyidina Umar, he came, as I just mentioned, he came upon one, one time and he said, make sure you don't go to an extreme, meaning go around cutting like crazy and so on and so forth. Um, so I think that that um, I think that should be kept in mind that this is something which is well established, not just culturally in other religions and people, but amongst the Arabs as well, and then carried on into Islam. And that is why Ibn Hazm al-Andalusi he said, rahmatullah, he said that there is a consensus of all of the scholars al-Ijma'a that it is permissible to do female circumcision. Ibn al-Qayyim said something interesting. He went further. He said, it is an ijma'ah. It is a consensus that it is recommended to do the female circumcision. Massive statement, of course. Massive statement. Um, I want to explain to you exactly what's going on here. So I want to show you a few diagrams so that you all understand what we're talking about when we... Just pull it from the bottom. Uh, when we... Um, uh, PG laptop. Yeah. Mirroring is... No, no, mirroring yeah, is on. Yeah, that's fine. Done? Turn it off. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, I want you to see this. First of all, I want to show you something crazy. Uh, I'm going to whiteboard that, that. You see this? That is what Satan Ibrahim did it with himself. Okay? This is called an AIDS, a Qudum. That's some next level behavior. There's a narration which Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, he narrates, okay? And I want you to, this is one which is using a flint, okay? Now, I mean, I mean obviously, um, if you think about, if you think about this, this, this part here, all right, okay? That is just a stone, so that's not actually so sharp. This is a, 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 a various versions of this. If it had the metal on it, then you can imagine then, I mean, the modern day ones, they look like uh, one of those kind of, uh, like cleaving uh, hammers, you know, they've got that, 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 you know, that, that two kind of thing, you know what I mean, sharp, whatever, to pull out the nails. So, you know, you get a brand new one and it's very, very sharp. That's how the, 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 the more modern ones would look. 
So that's some serious behavior, okay? Now, obviously, he's going to be, uh, uh, when you look at him today, they're using a scalpel and they're using a bell and all that ring and all that. Yeah, it, the main thing is that they need to be very precise and, and exact. So using this boy here means that there's going to be a lot of blood all over the place and it's going to be messed up. And I just want to mention something to you. Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani narrates a hadith, hadith Qudsi, in his Fath al-Bari. And in the hadith Qudsi, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says to Ibrahim, why did you rush? Who told you to go and you know, run into that? In fact, uh, uh, in fact, I was reading earlier on, uh, Shaykh Muhammad Mukhtar al-Shanqiti, he said that um, in the ayah, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and when Allah trialed Ibrahim السلام, with some words, meaning some things that he said to him, this is um, in Surah Al-Baqarah, um, Ibn Abdullah ibn Abbas, who is Tarjuman al-Quran, okay, his opinion was that this ibtila, this trial that Allah trialed Ibrahim with, was telling him to go and get circumcised. Okay, was telling him to go and get circumcised at the age of? 80 years old, okay? At the age of 80 years old, was told him to get circumcised. Now what's interesting is Abdullah ibn Abbas says that there, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in, in this hadith Qudsi, we don't know the authenticity, okay? He's kind of saying, why did you rush? Yani, you know, I, I would have given you some time and some this and some that, whatever, we don't know. But uh, Ibrahim's response was, he goes, as soon as I heard the order, I didn't want to delay. As soon as I heard, this is what, and that's his way actually, when you look at what he did with his son, and when he came to do with his wife, and when he came to moving from Egypt, he's, wallah, he's, yani, yani, that's why he's called Ummah, because he's not, he doesn't mess about. He told something about Allah, khalas, yani, what am I wasting time for, alright? So, that's what he did. So you can imagine that, that's messed up. Man. Anyway, so, um, yeah. The first prophet yeah. in that? In that, the, if we're saying this issue of fitrah, you could say, okay, Adam was, was created like that. But then his sons and so on, who would be the first to be to have the strongest fitrah. So, so, so there's a difference between saying that he was the first one to make it a sunnah and the one who did it first. No one said that he did it first. It was awwal woman sanna, the first one who made it a sunnah. Meaning, it, meaning making it something that the people should do. So it's a different statement to saying it's the first person who ever did it. Wouldn't that just be Adam himself? Also making a sunnah? Not necessarily. Maybe he did do it, and everyone before did, did it, but it was not a sunnah for the people. And that's, of course, that's, that, there's many rulings with respect to uh, life and, and culture and business and whatever, which are not clear who started, but should have been started from the very beginning, like River, who was the first person who prohibited it in the early times, or Dhulam, with respect to transactions and so on. So I don't think that's a major issue. Right, okay, so the first thing I want to show you is male circumcision, okay? So this is a, a picture which is very good, actually, because it gives good kind of, you know, non-graphic kind of a way of understanding it. So... Here's the penis then, here, okay, and, uh, oh. yeah, I'll do it there as well, like that, hmm? like that, can I do it like that? No. Uh, so, um, so when we talk about the glands, okay, this is the glands here, okay, this is the glands, what we call the, 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 the penis head. 
Now I want you to imagine if you if you have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about, this is obviously very kind of shiny, very smooth, and so on. But upon birth or non-circumcised, okay, if you've never ever thought about it, that it's not even on show. There are people who've never ever seen a non uh, or ever thought of a penis looking anything other than like what is there. Okay? Right? The reality is though that there are hundreds and millions of people whose penis looks exactly like that. Okay? Exactly like this. There is a there's skin, basically. This thing is so thick. Alright, there we go. That skin is covered completely. So where they urinate out of is literally just there. Just there. Okay? And I want you to imagine here you're urinating out of there. Look, there's nothing around it. All this is gone. All of this is all gone. Okay? So if you... I want you to imagine a person doing urine in that state. In, in, in this state here. If he is urinating like that, that urine is getting stuck in there, it's getting stuck in there, getting stuck there, getting stuck there, and it starts to then get infected and so on and so forth. So when we are open, when we basically, and you know, actually, it's, it's not stuck. You could actually get your fingers, I mean, here it's showing two clamps, but you could get your two fingers and you could literally roll it down. So when we look here, okay, when we see this, you could literally roll down that skin and uncover it so it looks like this. But then it'd roll back up again. Alright? So it's clearly an extra skin. It's, it's something which shouldn't be there. And it can, when it's, when it's rolled back, and then it's cut off. So as you can see, they, uh, they use a clamp. They separate it. Cut down the side here. They are able to then bring it all the way down. Up to here. Up to, up to, up to this point there. And then as you can see, then they use a number of different kind of things here. Is that, what is this? Is this the ring method or what is it? Shazad, what is this? Uh, it's okay. <laughs> You're a psychiatrist. Every psychiatrist is a secret gynecologist. We know that, bro. <laughs> that is that is what I think. Um, that's some kind of clamp. But I mean, in the ring, they they probably use it there. And then with the circular, uh, if you've got a scalpel, and I just want to give you personal uh, advice on this, that there is no comparison between the scalpel and the ring method. Every pack and his dog is using a ring method because it's easy for a doctor. It's an easy 150 quid point pocketed, okay? Easy way out. He just goes there, just sticks the ring method on and he just, yeah, a bell or whatever they're called and he just, you know, little twist and then he goes off you go. If you want to go and get someone to do a scalpel, he's going to charge you 300, 400 quid. I got one of my boys done with this Jewish guy. He was the daddy, man, I'm telling you, man. He smacked it out of the park. That's him. Yeah, made the kid take morphine, this, that, whatever. <laughs> the, uh, put in this, blah, 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 using that. Pulled out the scalpel, went at it like a beast, man. Taz, taz, taz. Clean job, clean job. Yes, salam. Right, so you only realize, you see, you only realize what a clean job is when you see a non-clean job. You laugh, but you won't be laughing long, I tell you. Right? Huh? A lot of you have no idea. Ask Uncle when we had to deal with these boys. Eh? Sunnah is not, it's a stress, isn't it? Yeah. So, that's what we're talking about. <laughs> so, um, so what I want to say is that, so is, is that clear from a, from a circumcision point of view? Everyone, everyone understood, understood what's going on there, yeah? The idea then is to get rid of that. Now, I just want to just mention right here that when it's done when it's a kid, the kid is crying anyway, he's in pain, so we might as well you know, add that as well to the list. It doesn't really matter, right? There's an idea there. The problem when they're too young, of course, is that sometimes it's actually difficult if they're going physical, if they're going to use a scalpel, it's actually very, very, very small to actually see what's going on there, right? 
And so that's why they kind of want a couple of days, maybe a couple of weeks and so on and so forth to develop. And it's sooner to do it on one of the sevens, seven or a 14 or a 21. You only get it in young, get it in quick. If you can't get it in on one of multiples of seven, that's not a problem, inshallah. It can be done anytime when it's young, okay? Now on the issue of doing it when it's old, I want to say to you that this, as you can see, is not actually as crazy as it turns out to be. The only problem is, of course, is that afterwards it needs one or two or three weeks of absolute nothing happening, right? That's where the real problem is. For the kid, it's no problem. He's got his nappy on. He's at home chilling, not doing anything, right? An adult gets that done. He's going to have to take three weeks off work. He can't walk about. He can't go out, whatever. It's a lot of inflammation, a lot of bleeding. He's cleaning, he's antiseptic and whatever, whatnot. That's the real issue. Not the, if he fears about dying, whatever. He's not going to die now. No adult's going to die doing this, okay? There's local anesthetic, and we can even give him a general anesthetic, no problem. If he's completely freaked out, we just knock him out, no problem. But I'm saying the real issue is the recovery, which is why a lot of adults don't do it. But they should do it. They should do it, okay? But I want to say to you that Hassan al-Basri, he used to give a concession to reverts. So I want to say to you that I think that for a new Muslim, uh, my position is that it's not obligatory upon him to do it. A new Muslim is not obligatory. It's a good thing to encourage him to do so, at the very least for a health point of view. Of you. you can see, I want you to imagine, by the way, look at this loose skin. Just look at that loose, look, at, look, look, look how loose that is, alright? And everything is ga- gathered there. Yani, you know, infection and urine and muck and germs, and it's stuck under the fold of the skin. And when you've got it completely exposed like that, clean, you've got it, obviously, a, a good chance of, of, of uh, avoiding infection and problems. Is that clear? Everybody happy, everybody happy with that? So, Hassan al-Basri gave that concession. We'll also give that concession as well, inshallah, for those that um, uh, need it. Now, I tell you, now we're going to talk about the, uh, about the fear. And also, sorry, I just want to mention one thing though. Abdullah ibn Abbas was the exact opposite. Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma, uh, Imam Ahmed narrates that he was hardcore strict on the issue of circumcision. He used to consider it to be an absolute obligation and he considered that a person who's not circumcised is not allowed to pray or do hajj. He's not allowed to pray or do hajj because he hasn't achieved the, the basic condition of both, which is tahara, which is to be pure. So he would make people do it. So there is a, 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 there is a valid difference of opinion. Um, I also believe though that, that uh, uh, if he had been approached by new Muslims, elderly Muslims who felt that it was a problem, then he would have given them the concession. There's no proof to say that he's referring here directly to older people. We believe that his ruling of obligation is to do with younger ones. Now I'm going to talk about the female one. And this is where obviously um, this is, will be news for many, many people. So listen very, very carefully. Um, Okay, I'm gonna think I'm gonna go to this one first. Okay, so this is the angle. Okay, uh, this is obviously the stomach, and when we say anterior, this is the front. This is the stomach here. Okay, so you can imagine this person is lying down, and we're seeing from whatever view that is. I don't know how they call that view, but so we're now looking directly at the structure of the vagina. Now I want you to listen very carefully because. What you're looking at in terms of annotation, where it says A normal, B, and then C, and then D, these are World Health, Organiza- World Health Organization designated categories of what happens with respect to any form of operating on the genitals. Now, I want to just say there's two, type of, there's two type of operating on the genitals. One which is cosmetic, and one which is being done for any other reason. So, if it's done for cosmetic reasons... 
And I want to say to you that obviously this is illegal in this country. And we are not yani, saying to anyone do anything illegal. Okay? That's very, very clear. It's illegal in UK, in Europe, in America. It's illegal in virtually most of the countries of the world. This is illegal. Alright? So let's just make that very, very clear. We're not telling anyone to do something illegal. But we're trying to understand the issue and look at it academically. Um, uh, there are a number of critics of this law. Law which has been uh, uh, suggested by the World Health Organization and has been followed up by the governments. They followed it. Okay? Why uh, do we criticize these opinions um, or other people? The people who have criticized it most have been anthropologists, famous anthropologists and philosophers. They basically see this as some kind of cultural colonialism. That, that look, this is a practice that is done by a number of people as part of their religion or their culture, and suddenly because it's not uh, okay with our culture or our religion or our perception of things, then we've gone and banned it upon them. We're forcing our culture upon them. And to be honest, it's a good, it's a good point. It's a good point. And I, I just want to mention that that exists. At the same time, the WHO, they recognize that there are different types. The, uh, the ironic thing is that they have absolutely no problem, they have absolutely no problem with anything cosmetic. Okay, so for example, cosmetically speaking, the lips of the, the vagina, for example, or the labia, if they're very, very big and swollen, then there'll be a labia, labioplasty or labiaplasty or whatever. They, they will actually cut down the walls to make it more, to let, so that they're lost, less coming out and that they're more in line with the rest of the, the, uh, the entire vagina region. So that's just purely a cosmetic thing. There are other people who stick like, you know, earrings and things like that. You know, uh, uh, whatever they're called. You know, belly rings and things like that. They put that in there. That's legal to do. And if you have to remove some skin to help that to happen, then they allow that to happen. Okay? So from a cosmetic point of view, there is a number of things that they have no problem with. And then everything else is put into this category of impermissible, of illegal. And in fact, the, 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 the discussion has now changed so much that they don't even recognize a concept called female circumcision. So in the West... And in the academic and medical fields, there's no such thing now called medical circum uh, female circumcision. This is vital for you to understand. Because you might go and try to explain, no, 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 we, are, we believe in female circumcision. It's not female genital mutil mutilation, FGM. Actually, now, legally speaking, there's only FGM. Everything is a, gen a genital mutilation. Everything is a mutilation of the, the genitalia. So they consider a number of levels. This level, this, this one here is normal. This is what a normal scenario would look like. So you have, you have um, uh, the, all, all of these aspects of the... Let me just... Uh, in, uh, sorry, one second. This is what they would consider to be normal with no operating being done upon it whatsoever, okay? This is where they would, this is the, 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 the urethra opening, meaning that's where they urinate from. This is which is used for sexual intercourse, that's the actual vagina itself. And then these, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not annotating, hold on one second. So this is, that is where they urinate from, that is used for intercourse, this would be the inner walls, this would be the outer walls. That is like, you know, being very, very crude about the, the actual structure. Everything is normal. Nothing has been taken, nothing has been touched. This is the key, okay? This is what's called the clitoris. This clitoris is what is under discussion when it comes to female circumcision, okay? The clitoris is like, it is, the clitoris is actually very interesting, all right? Um, and, I'll, and I'll give you a, di I'll show you a diagram about, uh, about that in the next picture. 
But I want you to understand that the clitoris is the small, hard, pea-like structure which is at the top of the vagina, okay? And it has 8,000 nerve sensory nerve endings, 8,000. Now, the reason I mentioned that is because I want you to compare it to the male penis, which has 4,000. And the reason I mentioned that is because the whole discussion is about sens uh, uh, sensual pleasure or sexual pleasure. The whole discussion is about that. Do you understand what I'm talking about here? Okay, if you imagine <coughs> when it comes to the sexual experience, the male is of course so, so driven by the sexual experience by the fact that his penis allows him to feel all of that sexual pleasure and that's based upon 4,000 sensory nerve endings, okay? The clitoris itself is 8,000 in of itself just on that small pea-sized structure and it leads to 15,000 other sensory nerve endings. So I want you to imagine that when it comes to discussion of sexual desire, there's no comparison between the man and the woman. What the woman could actually... <coughs> what the woman could actually achieve or achieves. I also want you to know that, therefore, when all the discussions surround the, 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 the circumcising of the female genitalia, it's referring to the clitoris, okay? And what is their idea, as Ibn Taymiyyah, he said, and this is what his, this is, his is the most famous statement on the, on the matter. He goes, yes, I do believe that a woman should be circumcised. Why? Because if she isn't, then her sexual desire is out of control. Have you not seen, have you not seen the desire, the intrinsic sexual desire and appetite of Muslim women compared to the, the Frank and the Tatar ones? What he's talking about are the Chinese and, and Western. That's basically what he's, he's referring to. Mongol, uh, Eastern of, uh, east of the Middle East. And then west of the Middle East, so Western, basically Roman, and so on and so forth. Their sexual drive, their sexual appetite is something which is uncontrollable. And it's well known, and this is what's amazing, subhanAllah. He goes, it's well known that when you reduce, and you must only by small amount, when you reduce the sexual uh, 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 appetite or desire or whatever uh, on this, then you achieve some parity. You achieve some kind of parity, meaning you've got some norm uh, normalcy and... Uh, that woman's not going to be completely crazy and going to be doing all kinds of crazy things. I don't know, you know, uh, going out and having affairs and things like that or whatever. And likewise, if you go too much, then you cause damage to her. And you also, of course, cause damage to the husband because then he feels that his wife is not being satisfied. And therefore, then he is forced to go marry other people. So this is his rationale. This is his, this is his rationale. We're just going to continue. I don't want you to understand now what's happening here. Just, now, you, just you press the hand to enlarge, you know, the hand. Yeah. Yeah. Enlarging. Okay, that's fine. So, so, um, okay. I want you to understand, okay, that type one B is something similar to what would be considered to be female circumcision in Sharia, which would be something of um, not actually uh, 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 doing anything at the top, but actually partial. Removal of the clitoris or some kind of shaving of it or some kind of cutting of it, which I have no idea how it would happen But I just want to, to emphasize it would be there concentrating on this part here Good luck to you, all right mm -hmm. 
Okay? <laughs> right, all right, it's not gonna work, so that's fine. Now, uh, type, type C, type C is, I want you to look at C type two, which is the removal of the complete clitoris, okay? Which is not allowed in Sharia at all. And then type three is all kinds of crazy behavior, which is to close this off, close that off, create an artificial kind of blockage, and that was to increase increase the uh, sexual pleasure of the husband. So that's completely haram. And that's ruining her life and also causing problems. And I want you to understand the psychology. It's very important that you understand why the West has, has rallied so much against female circumcision. Because that's how they read it. They read it as that type D. Okay? They, we argue about type 1 in a second as well. But they read it as type C and type D. The removal of complete sensual pleasure for the woman. That's what, that's what, type, uh, that's what C would be. Because if you remove her clitoris, you're removing her orgasmic experience almost. If you do D, not only have you removed the clitoris, which is her sexual pleasure, you've also made her completely a slave to the husband. Meaning the husband, he wants, a more, uh, uh, he wants a, an enhanced sexual experience, so he wants to reduce the size of the vagina. I want you to understand that the reason that people prefer the, the concept of virgins when it comes to sexual experience is because her vagina is something which is not open and not widened because of lack of sexual experience. And that proves for an enhanced experience for the male. That's why whenever the hymen has broken, meaning that the, 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 the ability, that the, uh, the vagina opening, if you like, is wider or so, then the man who will approach her will not have as good a sexual experience and also believe that she has had previous sexual experience. And that is, of course, why there's this big kind of hoo-ha, your hymens are broken, what have you been doing, etc., etc. So I want you to understand that this fourth scenario, D type 3, is what cultural people will do to just for the selfish reason of the man, don't care about the woman. Effectively, they made a female sexual slave, which is completely impermissible in Sharia. All right, so I hope that that makes sense now that you all have a clear understanding about why it is that people would do this, why is it that even the Muslims would consider it. I want to say to you that after having said all that, Okay, let me show you now in, in the books what they refer to when they say female circumcision. This picture will show it. Okay, this picture is a very good one actually. It took me ages to find and I'm now a world expert. Okay, so look at this. Remember that we said that it looks like the, the crow's crown or the rooster's crown or something? They're referring, okay, to... Honestly. You're holding, you can't touch it and do it at the same time. Okay, okay, there you go. They're referring to, the, they're referring to that, okay? Shazada got upset there, right? So, so they're referring to this top part. Is that clear? Now, I want you to imagine what you're seeing is something which can't be seen from the outside. You're seeing a cross-section of what's inside the vagina. You're seeing inside, all right? So I want you to imagine that, the, uh, that literally, literally all of this Alright, is, is, is like that. That's the vaginal kind of the, the labia. Almost. Almost. Almost like that. The two lips, if you like. That's happening. It's a poor, it's a poor thing, but that's what I want you to understand. That's the angle. Okay? And I want you to imagine that that small clitoris, that pea-sized thing, that's here. That's all it is. What you're realizing here is that the clitoris outside is only a tiny, small thing, and its massive internal part is where it's all at. That is, look, look, look at the size of that, compared to, you're seeing that little, small, tiny, hard part there, which is slightly visible, and it's covered by what's called the hood, which is 
which is here, the clitoral hood, yeah. But all of this part, okay, all of this part here is really the real part of the clitoris. And, and you know, I know that that might sound inappropriate, but wallahi, I was looking at this and I found this to be one of the miracles of Sharia. Because how they knew to reduce sexual pleasure like this, this has only been discovered in the last 20, 30 years. When they started, they always used to consider a woman who orgasms to be orgasming via what's called a vaginal orgasm. And now, when you, when you look at them at, at, in their field, I was reading, they said that uh, there's no such thing as a vaginal orgasm. It's actually a clitoris or clitoral or whatever orgasm. Meaning it's actually happening because of the engorgement or the enlargement of this bulb here and this cross or cr cr oh, I don't know what they call a singular. There's two of these, okay? And these then create a swelling and then allow all of the hormones to go whatever, blah, blah, blah. So I'm just saying that the statement of reducing this in some kind of way, and I, I and I, again, I've never done this before, I have no idea, never will do it either, I can assure you, right? Is that some kind of trimming of this part here, some small part of trimming at this top part to reduce the amount of sensory uh, nerve endings. So I, I hope that that's a understanding at least of what the what what happens and what goes on. So I'm going to just take that down now. So so now just to to to, to finish off. Huh? Yeah, take that off. Yeah. Okay. So I want to I want you to now uh, my position on this. I want you to know that the the, the you know the clitoris itself. Okay. This is something which which is different from woman to woman. I want you to know that the issue of sexual desire is also different from people to people, time to time, place to place. The weather has an impact. Genetics has an impact. Um, I was reading that when a woman is born, uh, uh, when she's a baby, her clitoris is X size. At puberty, it's like four times bigger uh, or, or something. And when she hits 30, 32, it's four times bigger than that. And when she hits the menopause, it's like two times bigger than that. So you've got something which is, in, which is, in, which is growing uh, bigger each time. And if we're saying that the clitoris is fundamentally what is responsible for a woman's sexual pleasure in intercourse, okay, then you can imagine that that can go out of control, that that can get big. And there are operations, medical operations, where a woman who is suffering from, you know, oversensitization or sensory, whatever, whatnot, will have it reduced actually in a hospital operation to kind of keep things under control, inside and outside. And effectively, that's what Sharia was trying to say. And my personal position is this, that it is something which is permissible. As a Muslim, we should never say that it is something haram. It's not haram at all. We are ne we are, we, if our Prophet ﷺ allowed other people to do it, then we will allow people to do it. There is no evidence, in my opinion, that the Prophet ﷺ demanded this from women. And therefore, I do not consider it to be a sunnah. And therefore, the we, I, we can say proudly that as Muslims, we do not think that this is required from our women. At the same time, we believe that the Prophet ﷺ has allowed and legislated for this to exist as a ruling. And if there are women, or there are people who want to do this to reduce her sexual desire, and the reduction of anyone's sexual desire, okay, in a time where they're not married and so on and so forth, is something which is praiseworthy, not blameworthy. And so if someone wanted to do that, then we wouldn't say that it is banned or that we wouldn't, we wouldn't criticize it. As a law point of view goes, it's illegal in this country. So we will never tell anyone to go and do it. And the good thing is, because it's not obligatory in our deen, we don't have to tell anyone to break the law. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? At best, this is a recommended act. 
And if the law says it is impermissible in this country for X, Y, Z reasons, then we just say, well, you know what? It doesn't matter because the law has said what it is. But from our iman and aqidah point of view, this is the act of circumcision has a defined reduction effect in the sexual desire of the woman that might be required sometimes, other times it won't. We won't. Imagine a woman, okay, imagine if we said it's sunnah for all women to do that, which is wrong. That's why I'm saying it's not a position. And there's women who don't have a sexual desire. Just like men, for example, who are impotent, for example. Yeah? Men who are impotent. We, we, we know that that exists. You can't obligate something based upon sexual desire when you, when you find someone who don't have that, have that problem or that challenge. So in my, in my position, I think that the position of Ibn Hazm is good. I think that he recognizes that the consensus is that it is permissible. And our position in the West, in the Western world, 21st century today, is that all that there are people out there, and this is an important point. I want you to listen to me very carefully. We are currently dealing with an issue where our words can be twisted and misunderstood, not just legally against ourselves, but actually to allow people who culturally are, are abusing women. And that definitely happens. And this is very common in Africa and Egypt, okay? And FGM, they really go, there are men out there who have no other interest but to abuse women. And they will go all the way and they will try to pretend to use the religion to justify them basically reducing the woman down to basically a sex toy that has no uh, desire herself that a man can keep going back to and have optimum sexual pleasure, etc., etc. And if that was enough reason for us to clamp down on the practice to get a control of things, then that's a good enough reason. Which is why I don't think that Muslims need to make a big thing out of this. Yes, if you're in the media and so on, don't try enter into this subject because to try and talk about this, you're not going to have an hour and a half to explain all the fuck behind it, okay? And the reality is, as soon as you try to mention that it's soon, no, it's not, just say, listen, we're against FGM. We are. We, they, they can call it what they like. We know what female circumcision is. We are absolutely against genital mutilation. We are absolutely against the, the, the cutting or the removal of the clitoris or anything like that. And so on and so forth. Just keep it like that and it's no problem. But you know Iman and in your heart that we believe medically and historically, culturally and Islamically. And there's four aspects there. Medically, historically, culturally and Islamically that it has been shown and been proven beyond doubt that the clitoris itself is something of extreme, extreme sensory uh, uh, function and you know I just want to just add something this is this is why wallahi anyone, the more I read into this the more I think it's a more ajizah. I think it's a miracle aspect of our deen okay you know the clitoris it is the only part of the human body which has no other purpose except for the existence of pleasure it has no other function if you look at the penis it has a function of pleasure but it also has to be there to allow the urine to come out the clitoris has no function at all. At all. Just there to allow the woman to be sexually satisfied. So, Yani, for, for the people of the culture to recognize that and to then act upon it is something I find uh, astonishing. Anyway, I hope that that all makes sense. Alright? We don't need to get our knickers in a twist. Should we use that? That's inappropriate, isn't it? Yeah? That's so inappropriate. Yani, we don't need to lose the plot, basically. And I hope that that was a, uh, I intentionally made this a detailed thing because I don't, I don't, and I don't know of in the East or the West, anyone who has dealt with this topic in the detail that it deserves and should, and people need to be educated about this. People need to see the male organ and the female organ. They have absolutely no idea. They absolutely, absolutely have no idea. And if at the very least you're, you're about to get your children circumcised, allow the girls, you don't no need to, inshallah, look after them better, then you'll have no problem with them. And for the, for the men and your boys, then, you know, my advice is don't use that ring method. It's a cheap pack and just getting a quick, quick 100, 200 quid. 
get someone who can do it with a scalpel properly, uh, 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 legitimate, in good, in good place, and all the rest of it. So I hope that that was, inshallah, something of benefit. Barakallahu Um And um, I think... Huh? 9.40. 9.40. But you know that you enjoyed it, Shaz. So don't be complaining. <laughs> all right? Okay, then. Any questions uh, thing online? Anything we need to take? You have a quick look for some uh, important questions. Or maybe, make you, maybe we leave him, I think. There's only two questions. Go on. Um, if Kafir is an active state of denying the Creator, then why do so many people, sometimes speakers, say Kafir referring to the West or all non-Muslims? Is it just a case of them not understanding the true meaning of Kafir and thus misusing it? Because we are taught that Kafir is a very, very serious claim. Yeah, it's a good question, that. Uh, basically what the question is saying that if kufr is an active kind of state, why is it that well, uh, speakers refer to the people in the West as kufar and in that manner? Uh, takfir is a big issue. Yeah, and why are people doing that? And, and uh, is it because they don't know what it means? The answer is actually uh, 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 for two reasons. Number one, it is because people don't actually understand what, what kufr actually is. A number of speakers are just that. They're just speakers. They ain't got a clue what they're talking about. Understand Arabic language or study. They just go out there and speak because they think it's, you know, all nice and fun and good and you get chocolate and you get things for it um, uh, the, the, the truth of the matter is is that they don't understand that's number one um, I want to just say with respect to her saying that takfir is a serious issue takfir of Muslims is a serious issue not takfir of non-Muslims so that's no problem the, the, asal, the, the status quo of non-Muslims in the West is that they are upon kufr. You don't need to worry about making takfir of the people who are upon kufr. Uh, the the uh, second reason that people use kufar, and this is an acceptable use, is because it's a general naming system, a nomenclature for non-Muslims. And that's fine. That's fine. People want to refer to them as kufar in a general sense. Then that doesn't mean that, that they don't understand what kufr is and it's active and so on and so forth. And sometimes it insults people and if people think that it's insulting kind of phrase then they shouldn't use it. That's no problem either. Yeah. Uh, last question. Um, why does the author decide to talk about this topic here? Seems random after about Bismillah before we do. Yeah, uh, good. And the reason why uh, Imam al-Hajjawi brings up circumcision right here, and it is actually brought up here, is because it is from the fundamental aspects of purification. And we are now going into the general ideas and the ways of, of uh, the, the way of being purified. So it's actually perfectly placed here. Perfectly placed here. Allah, Allah subhanahu knows best. Are we good there? Okay, we'll call it that. Jazakumullah khair, subhanakallahu wa bihamdik. Shadu wa la ilaha 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 If you don't see me next week, then you know why, yeah? Come and visit me. I want flipping petitions. I want, I want, I want protests. Where you're going, they don't allow visitors. Where I'm going, they don't allow visitors. That's when you hear that. Allah, that's bad news, man. That's bad news, yara. Bunch of packs, man. I'm dying there. No one gave me some water. That's some. My man comes back from Jersey and he brings me water straight away. You see that? Where's all you packs? Just sitting there. Let, let the pack choke. It's all what? <clears throat> so I was looking for some assistance from you today, man. You you came up wanting today, bro. There must be some gynecologists. <laughs> bro, as, 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 as I said... Everyone's a gynecologist, bro. No, no, you know, no one now know exactly what I'm saying. Don't act on it at all, basically. I'm going to hit anyone speaking about it, as you said. And you're right, you can't really have a 
Hamza, your daddy lasted, he lasted, he lasted.